Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival known as TIFF. And I'm Dorota Lech, documentary programming associate for TIFF. We are back with part two of our preview of documentaries at TIFF 2017. These films will eventually make their way to other festivals, theaters, and digital platforms. You can hear the first half of this conversation on our last episode. Today we're talking about figures of resistance, views from around the world, Canadian docs, award-winning films from Cannes, Carlo Vivare, and Locarno. We have several clips to give you a taste of these films. Plus, we'll preview the TIFF Doc Conference. going to start with director Matt Turnauer making his third appearance at TIFF. His debut in 2008 was Valentino, the Last Emperor, that captures the great fashion designer on the verge of retirement. The world today, the world of fashion today is very, very, very different. If there is a reason for Valentino to stop one day, that's the reason, that it is not a world made for him. Turnauer proved himself a master of tracing the past to the present, and he does it again in his new film called Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Here's a clip of celebrity biographer William Mann describing the title character, Scotty Bowers. It wasn't until I started working my book on Catherine Hepburn, I was talking to some of the other biographers, and they said to me, you know, there's this character out there that you really should try to talk to, and his name is Scotty Bowers. And he had this gas station, and he, you know, he supplied men and women to the various Hollywood stars. He, knew, he knows all about that era, but, you know, you'll never get to talk to him. I began to think that maybe he was an urban legend. <laughs> you know, there was no Scotty Bowers. Scotty is not an urban legend. He was a kind of gigolo for men and women, and he ran a network of sex workers during Hollywood's golden age. Turnauer films with Scotty for over a year— and gets him to open up about all kinds of sexual adventures. Scotty's entree to Hollywood happened after World War II when he started supplying the director George Cukor with male playmates. George kind of uh, told Catherine Hepburn early in the game what I did, <laughs> you know, in a way. Then I could see running it through her head, well, if he fixes up guys, he should be able to fix up girls too with girls, you know what I mean? I could see that. <laughs> I fixed her up with every bit of 150 girls. And people says, how would she see that many? I said, this is over a period of 39 years. That's almost 50 years. I mean, that's not unusual at all. Scotty's client list is pretty mind-blowing. It included Spencer Tracy, Cary Grant, Lana Turner, Ava Gardner, British royalty. The list goes on. I'm an avid listener of Karina Longworth's podcast, You Must Remember This, and loved having this new entry point into the secret and forgotten lives of some of Hollywood's golden era stars. Scotty himself is an incredible character who has more energy in his 90s than most people several decades younger. A few years ago, he published a memoir about his gas station slash brothel called Full Service. Matt started filming with Scotty around the time of that book's publication, and we get a deep insight into his world beyond what's in the book. Turns out he's something of a hoarder, and this film at times feels a little like Grey Gardens, only with a lot more sex. There's also a political dimension to Scotty's life. He was catering to gay men at a time of extraordinary repression against homosexuality. 
That leads us to three other films that profile figures of resistance. Across the world, we're seeing people try to fight back against governments, corporations, and other oppressive systems. Certainly that spirit is rising in North America and was on my mind when I was watching films this summer. These three films from Liberia, Turkey, and Serbia introduce us to characters persevering against tremendous opposition. The first film is called Silas. Silas profiles the life of Liberian activist Silas Siakor, a crusader against illegal logging. After living through 25 years of civil war and upheaval, Silas created the Sustainable Development Institute to advocate for protecting the country's resources. The problem they face is logging companies financially rewarding government officials to look the other way. Most of this logging happens in remote areas unseen by journalists or human rights monitors. But Silas and his fellow activists travel to those areas and document abuses with their cell phone cameras. Here's a clip where Silas explains. Corruption has always been a big part of the problems we face in Liberia, and we have to fight them. I grew up in a household that never knew enough, and I know what it is like to go to bed hungry. So when I see a community where they are already beyond that point, they are struggling much more than my family struggle, and you want to worsen that situation, that's just unfair, and that's unacceptable. This film really gave me a deeper understanding of how international companies can be a disruptive force in a struggling economy like Liberia. It's very impressive to see Silas and his team working with minimal resources. It's a real David versus Goliath story. The co-directors are Anjali Nair and Hawa Esman. They've been working on this film for five years. Anjali even created the information sharing app called Timby that Silas uses in his work. I'm proud to say this film came through the Hot Docs pitch forum I produce and received funding from the Hot Docs Blue Ice Fund. One last thing I want to say about this film, I was surprised to see that Silas is a critic of Liberia's president, Ellen Sirleaf Johnson. Usually she's been seen pretty favorably in the West, including in the film Iron Ladies of Liberia that showed at TIFF 10 years ago. I wouldn't say this new film negates her accomplishments, but it does point to challenges her administration has faced since it came to power. Our next figure of resistance is in the Turkish film called The Legend of the Ugly King. It explores the very dramatic life of the Kurdish filmmaker and revolutionary Yilmaz Güney. He was the subject of a retrospective at TIFF Cinematheque in 2012, but I knew nothing of his career, so this was a revelation. In his short life, he was a Turkish matinee idol, a political revolutionary, and an internationally acclaimed director. He spent many years in a Turkish prison, but still managed to direct films from there. And in 1982, he escaped in order to attend the Cannes Film Festival, where his film Yol won the Palme d'Or. The Turkish filmmaker Hussein Tabak tries to get behind Gune's legend. He says, I'm searching for the man who gave me courage to make films. His films have accompanied me since my childhood. But everything I know of him seems superficial and mysterious. I have to start crossing boundaries to find the man behind the myth. Toronto has a large Turkish and Kurdish population that made the 2012 TIFF Cinematheque Guni retrospective a huge success. I think we'll have a good audience for this one. Something that stands out to me in this film is that it includes testimonies from well-known directors as well as interviews with Turkish diaspora members. Some of them speak to the current regime and the need to educate their children about this revolutionary figure, Güney. The third film on resistance comes from Serbian director Mila Turajlic. She previously made a documentary called Cinema Communisto that explored the film history of the former Yugoslavia. Where was I from? You said 
Cinema Comunisto has strains of nostalgia for when Yugoslavia was still holding together. Her new film is called The Other Side of Everything, and nostalgia has been replaced by the stark realities of contemporary Serbia. Mila has a compelling character in her mother, Serbianka, who was an outspoken activist under Milosevic and remains so today. In this sequence, Mila asks her mother what was her lowest point. When the hyperinflation exploded, I remember entering the supermarket, which was empty, completely empty. I thought it was a general cleaning. Then I realized there was no food left. I was going around in circles doing math in my head, and I realized I didn't have enough money to buy food for a week. And I started crying. That was the hardest moment because you feel so helpless. And those tears are useless. I couldn't say if I was crying from sadness or anger. For the past 25 years, the Serbs mostly covered in documentaries have been war criminals. So this film is striking for its profile of the opposition. But I don't want to reduce the film just to its politics. Partly it's about the relationship between a mother and a daughter, and it also has a sense of humor. Drota, you've got a lot of experience in this region. What was your impression? I've traveled throughout former Yugoslavia in my past life as a political scientist and have been craving a film exactly like this one. I'm particularly drawn to figures of resistance who don't necessarily make history books but have deeply influenced local politics, and this is certainly Serbianka's story. The film really makes me want to revisit the books of Slavenka Draculic, like How He Survived Communism and Even Left. Okay, next we're going to talk about four other films that give us perspectives from around the globe. The first comes from Bolivia, called Cocaine Prison. Bolivian filmmaker Violeta Ayala teams with Australian producer Dan Falshaw. They were teaching English in Bolivia's San Sebastian prison and were able to put cameras in the hands of prisoners. They follow the story of a teenage brother and sister, Hernan and Daisy. He was a low-level drug mule who got caught trying to smuggle cocaine across the border to Argentina. We see them over five years as his sister Daisy tries to get him released from prison. The film gives a truly unique perspective on the foot soldiers of the drug trade who suffer the punishment while the bosses operate freely. Dan and Violeta pitched their previous film, The Bolivian Case, at the Hot Dogs Forum. Violeta is a Bolivian indigenous activist who brings a great passion for her country. The next film is called The Judge by Erica Cohn. Dorota, you've been following this film for a while. Yes. Erica pitched The Judge at Hot Dogs in 2016, and I've been anticipating it for quite some time. It's a fascinating film. When she was just a young lawyer, Khalud al-Faki walked into the office of Palestine's chief justice and announced that she wanted to join the bench. He laughed at her. But just a few years later, in a land where women rarely ascend to the ranks of governance, al-Faki became the first woman judge appointed to any of the Middle East Sharia courts. This film is a true courtroom drama. It allows us to witness the resistance that the judge and her male counterpart, a progressive sheik, face daily. Here's a moment in the film when we hear the judge describing a case. I heard a case where a man had been married to his wife for 18 years and his wife was unable to have children. So he married a divorced woman who had four kids from her first husband. Because he mistreated her, she asked for a divorce. In court, he said sex was better with his first wife because she had a nice body and no kids. But his new wife had stretch marks. 
He didn't like that. This is the problem, the way they view women. She exists only for pleasure and for childbearing. I live in the 21st century. It doesn't make sense to use 10th century ideas. I will never do that. Continuing the streak of women directors is Sabia Sumar from Pakistan. She was at TIFF 10 years ago with her documentary Dinner with the President, where she interviewed Pakistan's President Musharraf and others on questions of democracy. Her new film plays like a sequel, only this time she is traveling to both Pakistan and India, exploring religious authoritarianism. The title is Asmaish, A Journey Through the Subcontinent. In India, Sabiha is joined by her friend, the actress Kalki Koklin. The two interview Indians with different perspectives and have their own dialogue. Here's a clip narrated by Sabiha. Kalki and I want to have a view of where India and Pakistan meet. As we climb this mountain not far from the Indian border, my father comes to my mind. He believed in human power to evolve, overcome obstacles, and rise above petty differences. I'm not sure what the future holds for our two countries. It seems that bringing equality and reason to the world should be easy because that is what we all say we want. But looking at what we experienced throughout our journey, we find it isn't easy at all. This is a good time to explain that TIFF's documentary section draws upon the expertise of all 21 members of the festival's programming team. Between us, we put our feet on the ground in six continents every year, trying to better understand what's happening in local film communities. In the case of Osmesh, that film was invited by TIFF artistic director Cameron Bailey. And our next film was invited by Kiva Reardon. This is her first year as a programmer, focused on films from the Middle East and Africa. She was a real champion of this film set in Algeria called Of Sheep and Men. The director, Kareem Sayad, is making his feature documentary debut. This is an emotive profile of two men in an impoverished Algerian community. 16-year-old Habib dreams of training his prized sheep, Al-Bouk, to become a fighting champion. And middle-aged Samir just wants to sell enough sheep before Eid to make ends meet. Building on the style and themes explored in his short Babor Casanova that won various festival prizes, Kareem Sayad explores the current climate in Algeria, following the Arab Spring with an allegorical and intricate eye. Now it's time for Canada's homegrown films. Oh, Canada, terre de nos Tom, I'm not a fan of nationalism, but since you invoke Queen Celine Dion. Well, I couldn't find a Drake version, but we'll get around to him soon. TIFF's Canadian films are curated by Steve Gravestock and Magali Samard, with contributions from other programmers. We have six Canadian documentaries to discuss that are spread across various sections in the festival of docs, wavelengths, and masters. We're going to start with a Canadian documentary playing in the high-profile gala section. The film is called Long Time Running by veteran filmmakers Jennifer Beishwal and Nick DePontier. It profiles the band The Tragically Hip and its lead singer Gord Downey on their final concert tour. Dorota, this will make complete sense to every Canadian, but probably deserves some explanation for outsiders. So, The Tragically Hip came out of Kingston, Ontario in the 80s and have been playing together ever since. 
In that time, Gord Downey, the frontman, became Canada's unofficial poet laureate. Last May, fans were shocked to learn that Downey was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor, and the band undertook a farewell tour. The final show in their hometown was broadcast live and watched by roughly a third of the country. I know all my Canadian friends were streaming it at home, including my wife. I have to say it was one of the most emotional collective experiences I've ever witnessed. Dorota, did you go to any of the shows? Yes, actually. I can be seen on the DVD That Night in Toronto, which was filmed in 2005 at one of their shows here. Uh, But I've since become allergic to Canadian dude bros and haven't been to a concert in a while. Actually, I watched the last show from a hotel and bawled my eyes out in the glow of a Coke machine. Is that a Downey reference? Yeah, it is. Here's a clip from that final concert in Kingston where Gord Downey is addressing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who's in the audience. I'm going to say the mayor. I meant the prime minister. He's going to be looking good for about at least 12 more years. I don't know if they'll let you go beyond that, but he'll do it. We're in good hands, folks. Real good hands. He cares about the people way up north that we were trained our entire lives to ignore trained our entire lives to hear not a word of what's going on up there. But what's going on up there ain't, ain't good. It's maybe worse than it's ever been. So it's not on the improve, and we're going to get it fixed. But we got the guy to do it, to start, to help. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to that. Thanks for listening, period, all right? Gord Downey has an impressive commitment to Canada's First Nations communities, and I encourage you to check out his illustrated album, The Secret Path. It's about Chani Wenjak. He was a 12-year-old Anishinaabe boy who died on his 600-kilometer walk home after escaping a residential school in 1966. His death brought to light the abuse and mistreatment of First Nations children in Canada's residential schools. Canada's First Nation communities are the subject of two other films. We're fortunate to have as our colleague Jesse Wente, who's an eloquent voice in that community, He's programmed the latest film from Alanise Obamsawin, playing in the master section. Obamsawin is now 85 years old and has made 50 films for the National Film Board of Canada. Her newest is called Our People Will Be Healed. It takes place at Norway House Cree Nation, one of Manitoba's largest First Nations communities. Obamsawin shows us people reclaiming their heritage. Here's an interview she conducts with a woman during a special ceremony called a Sundance. My grandmother practiced some of these things very secretively when we were growing up. And everybody practiced in their own way, secretively. Yeah, everything was underground in those days. And now, I'm sure she's looking looking down upon us and, uh, you know, she didn't see it in her lifetime, but I am so happy that I managed to see it in my own lifetime and all of my children are coming here next year to attend uh, this Sundance. This is a beautiful and hopeful film that provides a beacon for the future and what's possible. I love Elenice. She's a true force. When I interviewed her at the doc conference in 2015, she revealed to our audience that her secret is dancing a minimum of three hours a day. Can you imagine? We'll get ours in as soon as this podcast is over. The second film dealing with First Nations is Alan Zweig's There is a House. Zweig has taken on varied subjects over the past 25 years, including his films When Jews Were Funny and the character study Hurt that both won awards at past festivals. 
In his new film, he's traveling to Inuit communities in the far north and undertaking a complicated dialogue that reflects wariness and distrust between Canada's north and south. In this clip, Alan talks to Selena Ehrengout. She is a resident to Igloolik and a community activist. You understood it the way I understand it. You would pity what's going to happen in 20 years. You would pity the present people who are going to live in those 20 years. Look at our pres- the, the, the cost of living right now. Look at how it's going to be down the road. People drink a lot of pop up here. And it's, it's five cheap. bucks. It's cheap. It fills the stomach. Well, it's not that cheap. It's, we saw it for $5 a can at the store. Yeah, but it's cheaper than buying um, ready-made food. It fills the stomach. Thanks for the optimism there. <laughs> Changing topics, let's move to the Canadian documentary Living Proof, directed by Matt Embry. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1995, but managed to stay healthy with a diet and exercise regimen. His film is an expose of the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada and their relationship with Big Pharma. We follow Embry and his father as they travel spreading their message. The film is partly infuriating, but mostly inspirational. I'd say this film really shows the power of a documentary to shed light on a condition that many people would otherwise ignore. I think it's going to start an important conversation. The next title can be found in Tiff's Wavelength section that's curated by Andrea Picard. That section is devoted to works that expand the notion of the moving image. It contains quite a few nonfiction films as well. Filmmaker Denis Coté was celebrated on the international festival circuit for a previous documentary, Bestiaire, portraying zoo animals in rural Quebec. His new film is called Tapo Silis, or A Skin So Soft, and he's focusing on male bodybuilders and their rituals. Denis will also be speaking at the TIFF Doc conference. Our final Canadian film in TIFF Docs is all about Toronto pride. Whoop, whoop. It looks at how the basketball star Vince Carter transformed the Toronto Raptors and brought a new energy to the city. The film is called The Carter Effect. Dorota, are you about to reveal yourself as a basketball bro? There may be a Vince Carter jersey hanging in my closet, and I may be trying to figure out which of my heels it best matches, but listen, this film is dope, and it'll especially resonate in Toronto. At the core of the film is an interview with Carter, who speaks with candor about his career and involvement with the Raptors, both the ups and the downs. Also, Tom, the film is basically Drake's origin story. He credits Carter with convincing him that hashtag the six is the place to be proud of. It's a love letter to our city. A key moment in the story is at the all-star dunk contest in 2000 when Vince Carter made basketball fans take notice. All right, Vince Carter with his first of final round. <laughs> Ladies, wait, time out, time out. Can, can I take a time out? In the film, we hear Drake remembering that moment. Everyone was just pounding on their chest, like, yeah, that's us. You know, that's us. And it didn't matter, like, at that moment, everybody was just a, a childlike fan, you know? Shaq, KG, all these guys, they were just with big video cameras out, like, just fans, you know, of our guy. In The Carter Effect, one of my favorite moments is hearing from Raptors superfan, a Sikh named Nav Bhatia, who boasts never having missed a home game. Would you miss a home game if your seat was beside Drake's? He's pretty noticeable at the games. (laughs) And he speaks very touchingly about how a city of so many ethnicities can come together for their sports team. The last group of titles we're going to discuss are four films coming to TIFF having won awards at previous festivals. We'll start with a very recent winner of Locarno's Golden Leopard Award from Chinese director Wang Bing. 
Our colleague Giovanna Fulvi, who programs Asian films for TIFF, has brought many of his past works to the festival. Some of those films have long running times in the range of three to nine hours. The new one is a more compact 86 minutes, and it's called Mrs. Fang. He's training his camera on an Alzheimer's patient in a village in southern China. She lies in a bed, surrounded by people preoccupied with other things. It's a challenging work that will also be playing in TIFF's wavelength section. The Locarno jury that gave it the top prize was led by Olivier Asayas. Our next title is filled with laughter and a big family that dotes on their mother. It's from Spain and has a delightful title, Lots of Kids, a Monkey, and a Castle. That phrase refers to three wishes of the matriarch, Julita Salmeron. She wound up having six kids, got a pet monkey, and through a windfall inheritance, bought a castle. The filmmaker is her son, Gustavo Salmeron, who's been to the festival before as an actor. Our colleague Diana Sanchez, who programs films from Spain, Portugal, and Latin America, turned us on to this. Here's a clip of Julita in full-blown storytelling mode. Me puse completamente colorado. Eh, por favor, camarero, por favor, camarero. Oiga, ya me la había tomado, no lo iba a vomitar allí. Digo, por favor, camarero. Hay una muela en el café y dice, una muela va a haber en el café. Digo, mírela. Y dice el tonto, era tonto, tan subnormal. Dice, como no sea de la vaca. De la vaca. Pues el leche, el leche de vaca, la ordeñar la cayera la muela. She's telling an amusing story that would be largely lost in translation, but you get a sense of the boisterous good time this movie is and why the jury at Carlo Vivari gave it an award. The final two films are from the Cannes Film Festival this past spring. I was on their Golden Eye jury for documentaries. Our jury president was the wonderful French actress and sometime documentary maker Sandrine Bonaire. We awarded a special jury prize to a film set in the Democratic Republic of Congo, The title Makala means coal in Swahili. The film is a simple, though very moving story of a subsistence worker, Kabwita Kasango, who chops down a tree to turn the wood into coal. Then we watch him take an arduous journey to face the haggling of the marketplace. (laughs) French filmmaker Emmanuel Gras handles this film so beautifully, it also won the top prize at Cannes Critics Week. Finally, we've saved the best for last, the film that won the top documentary prize in Cannes called Visage Village, or Faces Places, co-directed by the venerable French auteur Agnès Varda in collaboration with street artist J.R. I can't really say enough about this film. Varda is in her 80s, JR is in his 30s. The film is a cross-generational collaboration that brings out the artistry of them both. JR's street art is all about taking photos of local people, then blowing them up and pasting them on the sides of buildings to memorialize where they live. He travels with Varda to rarely seen areas of France, a former coal mining town, factories, and industrial shipping yards, to celebrate the workers there. Varda is a virtuoso with this kind of documentary essay, as we've seen in films like The Gleaners and I and The Beaches of Agnes. If our TIFF preview podcast can convince you of nothing else, please go see Faces Places. Before we go, I'd like to say a word about the TIFF Doc Conference that takes place on September 12th during the festival. This is an all-day event featuring many of the great filmmakers we've talked about in the last two episodes. 
This year's Doc Conference begins with a keynote conversation with Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, the directors of One of Us, and also includes conversations with Jane director Brett Morgan, Sammy Davis Jr., I Gotta Be Me director Sam Pollard, Silas director Angeli Nyer, and a Skin So Soft director Denis Cote. Also, Morgan Spurlock will be previewing his new A&E series, Culture Shock, that aims to do for comedy what ESPN's 30 for 30 did for sports. The Tip Doc Conference always has memorable moments. Last year, one of our guests was Jonathan Demi talking about his music films. You can hear that conversation on Pure Nonfiction, episode 23. Jonathan described seeing the Talking Heads live in 1983 and getting inspired to make Stop Making Sense. As I watched that particular show, um, I was like, wow, this is really like a movie, just waiting to be filmed. Look at this lighting. Look at these characters David does. Look at this great band. And I also thought there was a sense in, in that particular show of some kind of like an implied narrative, mm. that there was some kind of journey David Byrne was personifying as he went from song to song. Jonathan shared so many journeys with us in both fiction and nonfiction before he passed away in April at age 73. My biggest memory of Jonathan at Doc Conference was when he came into the studio and went around introducing himself to every volunteer and staff member. He was so kind and open with everyone. There's so much ego in this industry, but he didn't have an ounce. We want to dedicate this year's TIFF Docs program to the memory of Jonathan Demi. Give a special thanks to our colleague Jane Shodel for providing voice work on this episode. And to TIFF pre-screeners, Natalia Hunter-Young and Betty Shee, the festival's director of programming, Carrie Craddock, artistic director, Cameron Bailey, and director and CEO, Piers Handling. If you're a documentary fan, I invite you to join me on October 7th in Detroit for a special one-night event called Documentary All-Stars. I'll be joined by filmmakers Barbara Koppel, Steve James, Nelson George, and others for an evening of clips and conversation at the Detroit Institute of Arts Film Theater. It only happens on October 7th and only in Detroit. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net and click Events. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, web designer, Cross Strategy, and social media master, Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at Pure nonfiction.net.